Market research. Hold on, let me try that again. Market research. If I'm honest, it kind of sounds boring. A bunch of non-threatening dudes asking people questions, but market research is all around us. It's one of those underappreciated things that runs our world, and if done right, can make you gobs of money. So of course, here I am. I'm Ari Kagan. You're listening to Things You Don't Need to Know, and this episode is all about market research. Market research is interesting to me because I have a problem that needs solving. I have a YouTube channel. If you don't believe me, you can look it up at youtube.com slash Kagan. And lately, I have not been getting many views. So what does this mean? Well, I have 60,000 subscribers, and I get 2,000 views a video, which is not great. This is largely due to the fact that I don't make videos that are searchable, and I don't make videos that a majority of my subscribers want to see, which is why today we're going to use market research to figure out what people want to watch and hopefully get some more views. All right, so a couple things you should know about my channel before I begin. Uh, The first one is that I post literally whatever I want. I don't have any kind of niche. My videos are not particularly searchable, and I really don't give a shit about what the YouTube algorithm wants. I have a note here from my producer, Harry Nelson, asking how the YouTube algorithm works. And to best explain it, I would say a couple things. First off, it's always changing, so this information might be totally irrelevant in six months. But what it boils down to is watch time. You want to have a long watch time, and you also want to have a high watch percentage. So if your video is five minutes long, it'd be pretty good if people were watching like four minutes of it. And essentially, YouTube will promote videos that have high watch time, high watch percentage, and a high click-through rate. High click-through rate is basically your video gets shown against a bunch of other videos. If people click on your video more and they watch it longer than other videos, YouTube is going to promote it more. The struggle I'm currently having is my subscribers aren't interested in the type of videos I post now. This is entirely due to the fact that the first 30,000 subscribers I got were from me making sneaker videos, which is essentially just videos about shoes. I made them because I just liked shoes at the time. I don't really care about shoes anymore, so I don't make videos about shoes. The point I'm trying to make here is that my subscribers want sneaker videos. I mean, I've gotten another 25,000 or so subscribers not making them, which I think is really good, but people still want sneaker videos. And that's been really bad, at least from the perspective of other YouTubers, because it means that I'm not getting any views. But for me, I I honestly just don't care because I kind of just treat YouTube as a dumping ground for everything that I can think of and turn into a video. With that being said, it is nice to have your work seen by as many people as possible. So that is exactly what I am setting out to do. So please welcome market research wizard, Chris Bumcroft. My name is Chris Bumcrot. I'm in the business of public opinion research and market research. And I have been for, gosh, 27 or 28 years, I think. Chris has been in the business not only more years than I've been alive, but seven short of his career being able to run for president. That was my way of saying he's an expert. I got into it because it was this weird mix of doing some math, because there's sometimes there's statistics and quantitative modeling and that kind of stuff, but it also is loaded up with humanities. It's a lot about understanding psychology and sociology. It had an appealing mix of everything for me, and, uh, and so I got into it and I launched my own company back in 1995 with a couple of partners, and uh, we did all kinds of interesting work, and then we got to a point where we were able to sell our company to a bigger sort of public relations firm, and that's what I've been part of now for the last four years or so, and still doing it, still still trying to figure out how to learn what people are thinking and 
why they're making the choices they're making and how that should affect our clients' strategies. Clients like Viacom CBS. Yeah, back in the old days, I guess I guess this was the 90s, Viacom had a hit cable channel. It was mostly viewed by teenagers. It was a kind of considered a revolutionary new way of delivering, you know, a music experience to people. And, you know, it, it, it was considered a great success. Advertisers loved it. It was a way to reach this, this target market. This hit channel was called MTV. The audience for MTV started growing up. And they started getting into their 20s, and they were out of school, and maybe they were getting married and having kids. And no one wants to lose these customers, so Viacom said, you know what, we need now to create a new channel. That new channel was VH1, which at its inception was essentially just reruns of MTV from the 80s and 90s. A kind of nostalgia-filled time machine for people who grew up in the MTV era. And it was a terrible flop. Nobody was watching, nobody was listening and they couldn't understand why. And they hired us to do some research. We did some focus groups. We did some surveys. We did some analysis. And we basically came upon a really very obvious conclusion. And we said to them, when you're trying to deliver music to people, especially to adults, the television is the wrong appliance. People typically are not going to the TV to get music. They're going to use their Walkman, they're going to be using their stereo, they're going to use the radio. This was the 90s, there was no internet. They're not interested in just coming to the television to listen to or, quote, watch their favorite songs. What do people go to television for? They go to television for stories. So the light bulb went on for them. And they said, okay, instead of just heavy rotation music videos, we're going to start creating new shows, like Behind the Music and, you know, kind of, you know, Where Are They Now type shows. We're going to tell a story about musicians these people care about and what happened in their lives. What, how did they become famous? What happened after they were famous? What was the, the terrible fall they had and then the recovery they had? That's television. When they made that transition and realized we're not a, we're not a jukebox, we're not a, we're not a, a Walkman with a screen. We are a television network for adults. Sometimes it takes that outside perspective to figure out why things aren't working. Without market research, we probably never would have gotten great VH1 shows like The Pickup Artist. Once they started figuring out you have to make television shows, they had much, much greater success and were basically able to rejuvenate and save the channel. Which is exactly what I intend to do with my channel today. So I have a YouTube channel that has undergone quite a few changes in the type of content that's played. What are some things that I can do to reach out to my audience and, um, you know, see what they want to be shown? Well, you know, the nice thing about these current distribution channels that we have, whether it's YouTube or TikTok or Instagram or what have you, is the whole environment you're working in is practically a market research laboratory in and of itself. You are able to take a look and see, you know, not just what are the most popular channels and most popular videos, but I think you can probably even get access to what are the most popular videos among certain audience groups you care about. I'll bet you can even access, you know, what else are the people who watch my stuff? What else are they watching? I think there's a lot of opportunity for you to be able to just observe what your audience is doing so that you don't even have to ask them. Have you tried to do that, Ari, at all? Have you, have you tried to do an analysis kind of of your audience and what else they what else they look at 
Uh, yes, but I just don't like what they like. So. <laughs> <laughs> so and that's okay. By the way, you, you know, I, I guess the next step would be. Don't think you have to make make what they like, but you, you do have to at least let into your consciousness. You know, try to think through what, why do they like that? And it, it may be because it complements what you do, not because it's similar to what you do. So with all this in mind, I decided to plug into the mainframe and see who actually watches my videos. Now, Google gives you literally everything. Like you can find out if people in Japan watch more percentage-wise than people in South Korea. You can see how many people click on the ads. You can see which videos are picked over others. It's really an incredible tool for anyone who's building a YouTube channel. It's also something I've never taken advantage of, so it'll be really fun to look at the stuff for the first time. Immediately, the first thing I'm given is my male to female ratio. 86% of my viewers are male, and a little over a third of my total viewers are aged 18 to 24. The next thing I see is that most of them are American, followed pretty far behind by the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, Germany, and a real shocker here, India. Uh, my most popular video by far is I sold fake sneakers on StockX. It has 2.3 million views. Also popular is my Tiger King recap, my McMillions recap, uh, a video where I tried drop shipping, what about things to do while well in quarantine, and also trying a jawline refiner workout device thing. On the other hand, we got videos that didn't really get any views, like my sitcom, which averaged 1,500 views per episode, which is pretty abysmal when compared to some of my other stuff. The average video length was around six minutes, 15 seconds. Uh, so what does all this information mean? What does what do these videos have in common? Well, the successful ones have much more topical and searchable titles. For example, an episode of my sitcom that didn't get many views was simply called Chris, which is the name of the show. Season one, episode two, The Meetup, which when you put it like that, makes it very easy to see why nobody found that video. The more popular videos like the StockX one were called I Sold Fake Sneakers on StockX and This Is What Happened. That title is super enticing, whereas the sitcom ones just aren't. There's also the fact that the StockX video is about shoes. Like I said before, a lot of my early subscribers are from like sneaker type content. If you didn't already know, StockX is an online marketplace where you can buy and sell stuff like shoes and clothing, handbags, luxury goods mostly. And they have a service where they authenticate all the products for you. So me trying to, I guess, game the system was, it was kind of a golden combination video title wise. Other stuff like my pseudo documentary Tiger King recap video is very topical. It came out right when the Tiger King series on Netflix was all the rage everywhere on the internet and therefore just kind of piggybacked off the massive search volume. So based on my little assessment here, it seems like I should make something searchable, relevant and super popular within my own community, which if I'm being perfectly honest, I already knew but I just refuse to do it until now. That last one, making something that my subscribers already want is kind of the most important part because YouTube promotes videos that have a high click-through rate. So if they show 100 of my subscribers the same thumbnail and 10 of the people watch the video, that's a 10% click-through rate and that's really good. So then they'll show it to more people. If I can get my subscribers to click on it, I have no doubt that I'll be able to reach a massive audience. The next step was to talk to that audience. What do you think is the best way to get in touch with my subscribers and ask them some questions? You know, the classic old focus group is often ideal to get a small group of people together. And, and, and a focus group, by the way, has benefits that go beyond the individual interview. And the most common complaint I ever hear from corporate clients about focus groups is, isn't there always one person who dominates the discussion and then everybody agrees with them? And what I always say is, in society, people are influenced by each other all the time. And people who are more dominant have more influence. If they're more persuasive, they have more influence. Getting a chance to observe 
how are they influencing each other in real time, seeing it happen in a room, that can tell you so much about what's going to happen when you put your baby out there, whether it's a YouTube video or a you know new snack bar. You're more likely to learn something new and be surprised than you ever will be with a survey, which is really more just about obtaining measurement data. After the break, we obtain some measurement data and I run a focus group of my own. Welcome back. So here's the thing. Unfortunately, due to the coronavirus pandemic, I was not able to organize an actual in-person focus group. However, I could do one online, so I looked into that. What are some of the things that I should ask? For people who, who haven't done a lot of research before, the temptation is to say, oh, great, here's my opportunity to ask these people what I should do. Here's my opportunity to ask them what's good and what's bad about my work and my product. But the thing is, these people are terrible at that. They don't do what you do for a living. They're not content creators. They're not even critics. They're just consumers. What they are good at is talking about themselves, talking about their feelings, talking about their history, talking about their anxieties, talking about their prejudices, talking about their aspirations. And research is going to reveal people to you, it will not answer your strategic questions or your or your design questions. It will just give you more in-depth insight into who the heck are these people and what makes them tick. I don't really know where I'd begin when translating people's childhoods into why they watch my YouTube videos, so I figured I'd ask some more straightforward questions. I know it seems like I'm just throwing all of Chris's advice out the window, but I figure if I ask these more generic questions... Maybe I can strike up a conversation and get to the heart of why people like my channel. The following people I'm about to interview were found on my Instagram and Twitter, both at Ari Kagan. If you want to be in an episode of this podcast, I strongly suggest following me there because I'm always running out of guests and I have to scrounge around for people every single week. So uh, please be be in this show. Uh, what's up? My name's Kyle and I'm 19. I'm Daniel. I'm 18. Um, I'm from Chicago area. I like to collect clothing and sneakers. My name's Tom. I'm 24. I'm a struggling YouTube addict. What was the What was the first video that brought you to my channel? Oh, uh, there's. I saw. I don't remember what it was called, but I remember I had a Yeezy on the thumbnail, and I clicked that video so fast. I clicked that video right away. Um, the first video I saw on your channel was the selling fake sneakers on StockX. You made a video about the. There's a blue pair of mid-top ultra boots that were sort of popular at the time. What uh, what led you to subscribe? Um, well, it was it was different content that I've seen. It was homemade but professional. You couldn't tell if you were trolling or if you were serious half the time, and I love that. So it was something I could watch at any time of the day, and it was something I definitely wanted to subscribe to. What are some other YouTube channels that you watch? I honestly don't watch a lot of YouTubers. I watch a lot of people on YouTube, if that makes sense. Like, I'll watch people that are really good at something or really interested in something, and as a result, decided to make a YouTube channel versus watching, like, personalities that just tried to be famous by making a YouTube channel. So, like, Graham Stephan, Mark Rober, people like that that actually are sharing something cool. Um, and what are you, what would you want to see more of in the, in the future? I mean, you need to make another shoe video. Um, I haven't, I know that there's not too many sneaker videos, at least there haven't been in a while, and I love the sneaker videos you make, so I'd like to see a lot more of that. Um, 
also like when you do like collaborations with your friends. So I like seeing your friends in your videos. So that's really cool too. I would recommend that. Um, I like your little movie tutorials. I guess they're not tutorials, movie reviews. I don't know why I'm saying tutorials so much. All right, so I was taking notes on all of this when I recorded it. I have, I've, I'm starting to compile what this video might look like, but I'm a little concerned that the data that I'm collecting from people is maybe not that accurate. How do you ensure that these focus groups are conducted in a way that gives accurate results? <laughs> One of the uh, illusions or the myths of market research, whether it's focus groups or opinion polling, is this notion that it's some kind of science. It has the trappings of science, in a sense. Within the world of business, people think of research as being, this is, part, this is our lab, this is our scientific part, and we're getting to the truth, and we're getting accuracy and measurement. But I think it's really important to remember it's just, it's all just part of business. It isn't really a science. I would never want to exaggerate any claims that what we're getting at is some essential, accurate truth. We're just getting a different angle on things than you can get without talking to the people. And one thing that we'll often tell our clients is, you know, if you're worried that a piece of research is going to give you some kind of skewed view of things, well, use a few different methodologies. Yeah, do some focus groups, but also conduct an online survey. Go through social media postings and count the frequency of them using certain words when they're talking about your brand. Come at it from a lot of different directions. Look at your look at the, the, the letters that people send in or the emails they're sending into your customer complaint desk and, and interpret the language there. Use everything you can get because there is no such thing as some scientific, accurate assessment. Okay, so at this point, I was feeling a little more confident in my, honestly, if we're being, if we're being perfectly frank here, terrible Zoom excuse for a focus group. I decided to run a survey with just a few ideas for videos, see what people liked, what they didn't. I made the whole survey in Google Sheets, I believe. Is it Google Sheets? Google Forms. I did the whole thing in Google Forms, which I might add, and this is not a sponsored bit, is a very good place to do surveys for free. Once again, I put this one out on Instagram and Twitter, and within 24 hours, I had 64 responses. So thank you to the 64 people who took the time to fill this out. So without any further ado, the results of the survey. First thing that I found was that, while some people had found me through sneakers, a lot of them had actually found me through my newer videos as well. Now, keep in mind, I did stop making sneaker videos about three years ago, but YouTube kind of, you know, promotes older stuff, so. Unfortunately, there's still some of that residual shoeness. I also found that the channels my subscribers watched were all across the board. Everything from car reviews to vlogs to Minecraft videos. There was literally everything there, and I was I wasn't I wouldn't say I was really surprised by this, considering that my channel is kind of all across the board, but it was interesting to just see the absolute diversity in not only genre but style of video as well. I also found that a majority of people liked videos that were more than seven minutes long, which is very interesting given the popularity of TikTok and kind of fast content that we see nowadays. I just, I hate, I really genuinely hate the word content, but it's the only good word to use here. Something I was very surprised by though, 
was the amount of people that found documentaries to be their favorite style of video on my channel. It clocked in at more than double the next three most popular categories, adventure videos, vlogs, and comedy, which all hovered around 15%. And finally, a whopping 90% of people said that they would want to see another video on StockX. And at this point, it was clear to me that I had to make some type of documentary about StockX that was more than seven minutes long. So I set to work on what would become my masterpiece. Usually I'd put a montage here, but it's podcasting, so let's just give it a try, okay? I'm researching stuff. I'm pouring over articles, trying to get to the bottom of this, solving clues, finding clues, answering questions that aren't really that valid. It's all part of the documentary-making process. You're writing up, I'm writing the screenplay now. Well, I don't know, it's not really a screenplay. I'm writing the script. I'm really into it. Now I'm, I'm gathering my footage, I'm conducting interviews, I'm recording the things, I'm I'm editing. I've been sitting editing for like 16 hours now. My eyes are red. My nose is dry. I got a few bloody noses in the course of this. I usually don't get those. All right, now it's done. I'm uploading it to YouTube, pressing the upload button. There's like a cool zoom in of, of me pressing the button and then on the screen it's going up and I'm, I'm writing the title and everything. Maybe I'm kind of questioning what I should put for it. There's like a eureka moment and then the video goes live. So the video has been up for about a week now. Um, I wanted to share the results with Chris, so I'm gonna give him a call. Hi Chris, how are you? Hey, I'm good, Ari, how are you doing? Good, good. So um, last time we spoke, you kind of gave me some advice and things to do for my YouTube channel. So I followed all that and I ended up making a video called The Dark Side of StockX. And to give you a little refresher, usually I get about 2,000 views a video. This one, as of today, seven days after posting, uh, it has 114,000. No kidding. Wow. That's, uh, that's an extraordinary return on investment for your market research efforts. Yes, I would, I would definitely say so. You know, people seem to, to really like it as well. So, yeah, I just wanted to say thanks for your, uh, your input and, and all the, the great ideas that you threw my way. Well, that's it. you're very kind to say that, Ari. It's, you know, honestly, it, it's rare, even with clients who are paying for my advice and the advice of my colleagues, it's rare for them to then quickly go out and implement it and, and have, uh, have success with it. So this is very, very gratifying, and uh, it, I think it reflects very well on you, too. You're, you're, you must be a very uh, quick learner. Well, I, I, I suppose. <laughs> Your research professor gives you an A for, for your practical project, your thesis. Each week, I make one of these podcasts, and each week I set out with a goal of learning something new. And I would say I definitely do that, but it's not every week that you can actually apply what you've learned in a practical environment. And of course, most of the time, it's things like defusing a bomb, and I'm not going to go out and defuse a real bomb after listening to a podcast. Nonetheless, today I achieved something, and I'm really proud of that. But. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to put it to good use. See, as happy as I am that I achieved this goal of getting more views, I'd, I'd much rather just make the stuff that I want to make. Views are temporary. Making something you truly love lasts forever. I think the best bet in terms of growing my channel is to find subscribers that like what I make now. But that's a problem for another day. If you want to see how many views the video has now, check out my YouTube channel. It's just Ari Kagan. And as always, Thanks for li listening. If you want to hear me say thanks for watching, go to my YouTube channel. I mess it up nearly every time on the podcast, and you should you should you should just see where I got that all from.
Things You Don't Need to Know is a HyperObject and 3 Uncanny 4 production. The show is hosted and produced by myself, Ari Kagan, with help from Harry Nelson and Shane McKean. Nuna Sharafdin is our production manager. Our executive producers are Adam McKay, Laura Mayer, and Adam Davidson. The show is mixed by Nice Manners. If you like Things You Don't Need to Know, head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and hit subscribe. Also, if you leave a review, usually I say I'll give you something, but um, I'm going to be perfectly honest, we kind of need it for our own market research. So thank you for, for leaving a review and letting us know what you think, and I'll see you next week.